0: Hundreds of thousands of people are looking for a new home. War and famine send them fleeing to Europe any way they can, and Europe is struggling under the pressure. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, we look at how Italy, France, and Germany are dealing with the rush of refugees from the Middle East and Africa.
1: The media doesn't help by using kind of apocalyptic language like crisis or describing immigrants as as swarms coming in. So I think there's a lot of misinformation and misperception out there. We also look at the issues people are talking about in Spain. What do we do? How do we deal with these people
2: moving from one country to another country?
3: There is a lot of loss of jobs, a lot of closing of businesses, but I also find a lot of creativity coming out of it.
2: And Elizabeth Pisani shares the
0: delights of being an outsider in Indonesia.
4: I've stayed in villages where the whole village all come in to watch me have my breakfast.
0: It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. A lot of people travel with walls up. Bringing those walls down is what allows you to have those moments where you truly connect with new people and cultures. Rosetta Stone can help take down one of the biggest walls, the language barrier. Rosetta Stone is fun to use, you learn fast, and you can use it on your smartphone, tablet, or computer. For a special discount, go to rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. It's a huge challenge. The nations of Europe are trying to cope with the needs of hundreds of thousands of refugees, fleeing war and starvation. Coming up, friends from Italy, France, and Germany share perspectives from their countries on the refugee crisis. And we'll look at what issues people are talking about in Spain a little later in the hour. We're at 877-333-RICK. Let's open today's Travel with Rick Steves on the other side of the world. Elizabeth Pisani has lived and worked in Indonesia as both a journalist and an epidemiologist. She's examined what pulls together the people of its crowded cities and remote backwaters into what she calls an improbable nation. She writes about her encounters in Indonesia, etc. Elizabeth, good to have you back. Thank you for having me. Elizabeth, when you think about Indonesia, you think of, at least I think, of the clichés, you know, shadow puppets, gamelan music, batik, uh, fabrics... uh, Do we find that when we travel in in Indonesia still to this day?
4: Funny you should say that because every single one of those cliches that you've pulled out there describes Java. And Java is one out of 13,500 and some islands. It's one of the larger ones, it's the sixth largest island, but it's only 7% of the total land mass. Now, it squeezes in two thirds of all of the nation's people, and that makes it culturally quite dominant. But in fact, there's a lot of very, very, very different things going on in different parts of the country. Now, I've lived in and out of Indonesia for 25 years. And when I went back with the prospect of trying to sum it all up and write a book about it, I decided that I was going to do a great counterclockwise circle around the country and not actually go to Java until last, and I did that deliberately because I wanted to sort of not be in a way infected by those dominant images, those cliched images and I spent i suppose a year before I got to Java on cargo boats and motorbikes and you know buses with chickens and you know on my lap and all of this. And in all of that time, I never came across Wayang puppets, the shadow puppets once. No one ever mentioned them. And I thought, well, maybe this is also a sign of the times. Maybe those things, you know, in the Internet age, in the television age, Indonesians are huge Facebook fans. Jakarta tweets more than any city on the planet. They're quite plugged into modern culture. Maybe all of that um shadow puppets and it's just a thing of the past and then i got to java hmm. and it's not at all a thing of the past it's still very dominant there as a set of images people tell jokes about politicians that compare them to figures from the shadow puppets from the wayang plays and etc so it's funny how many of our dominant images as as foreigners of indonesia come just from that one island
0: Elizabeth, it is interesting when you travel, especially around the developing world, how the modern age has overtaken the big cities, but a lot of the traditions and the vivid diversity survives just as beautifully as ever in the far reaches of those countries. One of my most vivid memories of being in Indonesia, Java specifically, is taking the, the cattle car train from Jakarta down to Bandung. And I was a, at least a head taller than everybody on the car. It was standing room only, and it was like as many people physically as you could fit into those train cars and when people realized there was a tall blonde guy from the United States on the train everybody had to flow by me just to check me out and see who was on this train would you still have that kind of adventure when you when you get off the beaten path in a place like Java
4: yes and and much much more so when you get off the beaten path in other islands so I am not tall and I am not blonde I'm actually after a couple of months on the road I get almost Indonesian looking I'm short and rather dark but even then, just your habits are a source of great excitement to people. So I've stayed in villages where the whole village, bar none, grannies, aunties, six-year-olds, babies, all come in to watch me have my breakfast. Mm. And the thing that's of interest is that I'm drinking empty coffee, kopi kosong, empty coffee, which means coffee with no sugar. No one can believe it. So everyone <laughs> empty has to come coffee. and have it. How could you exactly everyone comes to watch and you think, Oh my six AM is not my best time of day
0: <laughs> um, What I like about your book is you talk not about the famous sites. there's you know Yogyakarta and a few things you gotta do, but basically it's getting into the culture. You talk about sticky culture. What do you mean by sticky culture?
4: It's a phrase that comes from Indonesian itself. They they use that word kental, which means sticky in the way that syrup, when it's been boiled down, is is sticky. You you get sucked into it, but in, a, in an embracing sort of way. And I think that there's really a tension at the moment between old cultural traditions and the modern world, because a lot of the cultural traditions are really quite limiting for people. If your grandmother dies in some parts of the country or your husband or your daughter or whatever, you have to have a funeral that will lead to the slaughter of several dozen animals, each of which costs you, you know, the equivalent of half a year's salary. And so people have to drop out of school. People have to give up opportunities for starting a new business or investing because they have a cultural obligation to slaughter buffalo for the funeral. So there are really good things about the sticky cultures. They they mm-hmm. maintain a sense of community. It's a very, very strong sense of helping one another. No one ever falls through the cracks. But there's a downside to that too. Mm-hmm.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Elizabeth Pisani, and her book is
4: Indonesia etc.
0: Elizabeth, when you're thinking about Indonesia, to me, it's the people that really you come home with memories of, vivid memories of. You you call them in your book the most hospitable people you've encountered. And you write beautifully about the different people you met. You connected with a farmer.
4: You can't not connect with people in Indonesia. They jump on you, as you said, out of curiosity and out of sheer joy of discovery of other peoples. And I think that comes down partly to the country's past as a a series of trading posts. But a farmer, how do you get into a farmer's life? Well, you're walking through the paddy fields and you hear this, you think, what kind of a noise is that? And it's rattling of cans. So the farmers have built these systems where they have a bunch of old tin cans filled with rocks hanging off bamboo poles, which they can tug simultaneously by pulling on a string to scare the birds. And so you realize that this is a huge amount of effort. You're in the rice field anyway, so you start rattling cans. And the next thing you know, you're staying with their family for two weeks. It it happens all the time.
0: Now, are these rented or just you're a guest? Because I stayed in Losman. Losman is an established kind of bed and breakfast system in the countryside, isn't it?
4: Yeah. No, th- No. this is just... Just you're part of the family. Yeah, part of the family. Yeah. Of course, you know, I always leave a contribution yeah. and you know, obviously as it's polite to do that. But no, this is genuinely, oh, we've never had a foreigner staying wow. before. That will be interesting, you know.
0: How about nomads? You encountered nomads in Indonesia.
4: The nomad populations are – we're talking about hunter-gatherers in the forests, and those populations are shrinking very, Mm -hmm. very rapidly. There are very few left, partly because the forests are shrinking so rapidly. And yet, and yet, those that still exist have an amazing life. So we, um, one of the gentlemen from the nomadic tribes, we went out hunting for dinner, and we went frog hunting in the river, and he was (laughs) – Meshach was um, hunting frogs with the backside of a machete. So using the handle of a machete, holding the blade and thumping them over the head with the handle of his machete. You know, I
0: want to stress, you don't need a special permission or a, a guide or a license to do this. Anybody with an adventurous spirit can go to Indonesia and have the experiences you're having if they're willing to get out there and meet people. Wouldn't you say that's true? It's it's not risky. It...
4: I, I would say that's true. I, I would say I would say you need a few words of Indonesian. It's, uh-huh. uh, it's a relatively easy language to learn um, and very well worth the effort. Effort, and a very few words go a very long way.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Elizabeth Pisani. Her book's called Indonesia, etc. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK. And Dennis is calling in from Juneau up in Alaska. Dennis, thanks for your call. Uh,
5: actually, I was curious. I was uh, interested in gamelan music, and then I saw a documentary on public TV about something called the Water Temple Festival. I was wondering if those still exist, and if it's possible to go see those.
4: Gamelan is definitely very, very much alive and well. And there are various festivals, particularly in central Java uh, and in Bali, that concentrate on Gamelan. But almost certainly the answer is, is yes, and I would encourage you to go and explore.
0: You know, Ubud in, in the center of Bali has Gamelan concerts for the visitors, and I found them just to be fascinating.
4: All right, thank you.
0: So, the majority of the people in Indonesia are Muslim. We're talking a couple hundred million people, uh, but generally people are committed to the notion of separation of mosque and state, and modern Indonesia is a pluralistic uh, secular uh, democracy?
4: Uh, Yes, much more than separation of, of mosque and state. They're committed to the idea of freedom of religion. You've got to have a religion, but as long as you are, you know, a good God-abiding people, no one really cares who your God is.
0: If you had two weeks and you wanted a a dose of three different or four different areas, what would you do for a first look at Indonesia?
4: I think it's hard to avoid Java as a first look because it's such an important influence on the culture of the rest of the country, and it's extremely beautiful, and it's also the easiest traveling because there's Mm -hmm. uh, very good infrastructure and large numbers of tourist facilities and and people who speak English. I would encourage people to head east slightly, so beyond Bali to maybe Flores Island, which has more diversity both geographically and culturally, but is still not so far off the beaten path that you would find yourself in, in difficulties.
0: For instance, you could fly into Jakarta. You'd probably want to go to Jogjakarta just for the ancient site, and from there you could actually fly over to Bali do Bali, and finish with Flores? Would that be
4: two exciting weeks? That would be two very packed weeks. Yeah. Yeah, whatever, whatever you expect to do, in general, have it, unless someone's organizing it very well for you. Yeah. One of the most beautiful ways, if you can afford to, um, to be introduced to Indonesia, is on a liveaboard boat. So some of the old... Bugis uh, sailing schooners have been refitted as sort of luxury cruises. And you can go from Bali eastwards through the Komodo National Park and to the eastern reaches of Flores on on those boats. And that's a very beautiful and very comfortable way to, to be introduced. And I, I would imagine it's nice to
0: know a few of the polite words in Bahasa Indonesia. That's the language, right? Bahasa Indonesia?
4: That's correct. Terima kasih is thank you. And selamat jalan literally means have a good journey.
0: Elizabeth Pisani, thank you so much, and best wishes with your book, Indonesia, Etc.
4: Thank you. Terima kasih,
0: Elizabeth Pisani tells us more about what it was like to travel solo across Indonesia in a program extra to this week's interview. You can hear that in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Up next, we check in with friends from Europe about the impact of the current refugee situation where they live. We're at 877-333-RICK. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, helping you learn a new language on your smartphone. Rosetta Stone uses images and games to teach instead of rote memorization. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Two weeks ago on Travel with Rick Steves, we discussed the plight of hundreds of thousands of people escaping the war in Syria and other difficult places. We heard how it impacts the economies of Turkey and Greece, but not the daily lives of most residents or visitors. We also learned why Sweden is a destination some want to reach to rebuild their lives. Today, we've invited guests from Italy, France, and Germany to explain how Europe's refugee crisis is affecting their countries. Holger Zimmer comes to us from Berlin, Virginie Morais from Lyon in eastern France, and American-born Nina Bernardo returned 20 years ago to her family roots in Italy. That's where she now guides visitors from her base in Rome. Nina, Holger, Virginie, welcome. Hi, Thank you,
1: Rick. Hi, Rick. Thanks.
0: Now, in the United States, you know, we've got media that just packs these images into us, and it, it just seems overwhelming. And I'm, I'm curious, in France and Italy and in Germany, what's the general take on the refugee situation? We call it a crisis. In your country, is it considered a crisis? How big a deal is it? Uh, Virginie, let's talk uh, in France first.
6: Well, it is a big deal and uh, all of the news, what you can see on the news in the US, we have the same in France. Obviously, people are uh, worried because of the economical crisis. There was a lot of uh, doubt about the European Union, but with the refugee crisis, it's even more now. And what you see in Calais, so in northern France, you know, mm-hmm. of refugees camps for people who are trying to go to Great Britain. I mean, the the conditions are squalid. It's just awful to see this on TV. So
0: there's the economic problem that was there before the refugees came. There's the the concern that can France absorb these people into an already stressed out economy, and there's just the humanitarian uh, disaster of people mm-hmm. camped out at the coast trying to get over to England. Mm-hmm. Nina, in Italy, what's the perspective?
1: Uh, I think the perception is very much the same. One, it's valid. This is a a huge issue that is not being addressed very well. But two, I think the media doesn't help by using kind of apocalyptic language like crisis or describing immigrants as, as swarms coming in. And that doesn't help the public perception. So I think there's a lot of misinformation and misperception out there as well in terms of numbers of immigrants in the country and numbers of people arriving. But yes, it's definitely a big problem that that hasn't been addressed in a a very systematic way. And
0: we'll talk about ways to address it in a moment. Holger, from a German perspective, how are the people in Germany
7: seeing this? And Germany really is a key player in all of this. Yes, it is. We just basically this year only had about 1.1 million people arriving, most of them refugees from Syria, from Iraq, Afghanistan, and half a million uh, of them roughly trying to seek asylum. So that's the the largest number since the 1950s, actually, here. Mm-hmm. So uh, there is a lot of concern because, yes, there is the willingness to help people who are, like, from a war-torn country, and we, we need to address that and we need to try to accommodate, and that's what Germany is really trying to do. But there is a concern also, like, one million people just like this in one year, and will this stop? Will this go on? And there is very mixed feelings about it, and I think... It's kind of half half when you look at the polls that people are really looking like, are we able to actually do something with it and and help these people not just by putting on on some mattresses in some mm-hmm. kind of um, sports halls as as they do now, but can we integrate them? Can we really make sure they're being helped? So this
0: is an interesting issue. There's, I mean, you can handle the quote handle the refugee problem by giving them cots in a gymnasium and letting them uh, giving them food and, and you're just holding them in a temporary miserable but safe situation you can assimilate them into your economy and that becomes a win-win thing where they contribute to the economy and they have a reason to work hard and, and join the society or you help them get through your country because they want to go somewhere else virginie in france do people feel like it's a positive thing potentially if it's done right that these immigrants can be assimilated into the country or is it just compassion and desperate cases
6: Well, in France, we've had the failure to integrate the the migrants community for a long time. With the Muslim communities, we, you know, France has not been doing a great job. After World War II, we had lots of needs for uh, manpower. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had the uh, people from North Africa who spoke the same country, came to France, the so first generation. And now we have second generation French citizen. France had had a hard time integrating them already. So
0: are these people hoping to integrate, or are they squatting in, in a wealthier country in order to still be Libyans or Algerians?
6: I would say with the new wave of uh, migrants we have now, they're actually only seeing France as a transit place. Uh, When we had the crisis with Libya, people were moving from Libya to settle in France because maybe they had their families there, they they spoke the language, but now they are just seeing France as a transit.
0: So where are they going?
6: The people who are staying in northern France, they want to get to Great Britain.
0: Is that because Britain has an economy that can absorb them better or that Britain is just more welcoming to the refugees?
6: Well, it's a bit of both because we have an unemployment rate about 10-11% right now in France. Okay. And it's very difficult. We haven't shown good sign of integration of the Muslim community. So people don't want to stay in France because they don't see good examples of integration.
0: Now, this is interesting to me because I think the Turkish immigrant labor in Germany is similar to the North African immigrant labor in a certain way, but from my perspective, it seems like the Turks have integrated in a more healthy situation in Germany. Over? Well,
7: partly so, but also that's been a cause of time. I mean, when the, the first Turks arrived, about 150 of them in 1961, that was the start of immigration, a, a really, right. uh, and we, we welcomed them. We said, hey, we want you to work in our factories. We don't want to do the dirty jobs anymore, that kind of thing. But nowadays, we have about 1.7 million living, like, of Turkish uh, Turkish. origin kind of thing, yeah, Yeah, Turkish only, in all of Germany. Is it a plus for your economy? It it is a plus, but it's also still the the case that even after this, like, 50 years, roughly, we still have a lot of pockets of the community, especially in Berlin, for example, who are still, basically, still speaking Turkish amongst Mm -hmm. themselves, going to Turkish shops, Turkish barbers, and all of that. So, there is integration, yes, and the young people are, you know, in German schools and speak German, but... If the parents still, mm-hmm. after 30 years living in Germany, haven't really learned language, that is an issue that is still to be addressed. Is it fair for a society to say, you're
0: welcome to come here, but we want you to speak our language and embrace our culture? You can still have your religion and your traditions, but is that a realistic and is that a fair uh, precondition?
7: I do believe it's fair in a way that, like, everywhere you go, you want to see what's happening around you. And if you want to succeed somewhere, I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's you yeah. know, the Germans, like, what is it, five point. Uh, Three million Germans emigrated over a period of hundred yeah. years over to the states, and I mean, and if you don't assimilate, you have a hard time succeeding. Human, you become the language culture. Absolutely, yeah.
1: it is usually the second and third generation that ends up assimilating. I mean, people who emigrated fifty years ago probably don't speak the language and probably never will. My family emigrated to right. the U.S. fifty years ago, and right. my father doesn't speak English very well. But certainly, we integrated very well. It's a long process. It's Mm -hmm. not going to happen within one generation.
0: Hmm. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the refugee crisis in Europe. Uh, We're speaking with guides from Italy, Germany, and France. We're joined by Nina Bernardo from Italy, Holger Zimmer from Germany, and Virginie Morey from France. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Jack's calling in from Wimberley in Texas. Jack, what's your take on the refugee situation?
5: Well, I'm about to make a trip to Germany and I was just wondering about the safety and is there anything to be concerned about?
0: You know, Jack, that's a very common concern and I've heard it from listeners and and other travelers for months and it's great to have a chance to get this take from our guests. Nina and Holger and Virginie, a lot of Americans are worried just about the safety of traveling in Europe given the what we see in the news. Nina, in Italy... You've taken groups around. You've been taking groups all year long. How does it impact, the number one, the safety, and number two, your ability to do your sightseeing like you want
1: to? Um, It hasn't impacted my job at all or any of the people I take around.
0: Virginie in France?
6: Same, same thing.
0: Holger, is there any concern for an American traveler about their safety given the refugee crisis? I
7: wouldn't say so at all. Of course, like, I mean, the concerns are pretty much more when you're living in the culture and you want to see, like, how does it work with the new people coming in? But in terms of traveling, in terms of coming and visiting mm-hmm. and seeing what you want to see, there is no issue there.
1: I think people have to make a distinction between their perception of what their fear is and the actual statistical risk of anything happening to them. Mm-hmm. And statistical risk is very, very low.
0: Jack, does that make sense to you?
5: That, that's good news. I'm still going.
0: You know, it frankly, it breaks my heart when Americans are dreaming to go to Europe and they mistake <laughs> some terrible image on the news for threatening the reasonableness or the viability of them taking a safe vacation around Europe. Uh, uh, Jack, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you very much. Beverly's calling from Glenpool in Oklahoma. Hi, Beverly.
5: Hi, Rick. I'm going to be taking the train this year from Lake Bled into Salzburg and staying there a few days and then up to Vienna. And I'll be traveling alone. So I'm just wondering about, you know, the Salzburg train station. I've heard as late as December it's still quite crowded with refugees. And then the, after the incident in Cologne, whether I would be safe traveling as a single female.
0: Holger, you're you're from that part of the world. Congested
7: yeah. train stations, the incident in Cologne. Well, yes. I mean, you probably would be seeing the reality of of things in Europe, which is there's people moving and there's people trying to find shelter from war, and so yes, they will be you know on trains as well as as off as a, like a kind of a transit mm. country because most of them want to actually go to Germany. But I, I have to say I wouldn't be worrying about taking a train anywhere there. It's just like you will see people probably that you would not, not have seen like two years ago and they wouldn't be crowding the train station but this is reality of Europe, you know, in 2016. So, but nothing to be worried about.
0: Beverly, when you travel, would you would you be awkward because there's this desperation in your midst and you're having a, a wonderful vacation? Would that be a little bit of your uh, reluctance to be traveling there?
5: Not really. I'm all about seeing what's happening. I'm just, was concerned about traveling alone in the recent uh, circumstances. You know, more pickpockets or you know... I think this this is an
0: interesting issue. There's a a million refugees in Germany uh, who are visiting and who are poor. Uh, Holger, what is the, just from a petty, you know, pickpocketing and theft point of view, uh, what are the Germans' take on that?
7: Well, I, I basically think you have one million people who basically come from, like, they've been uprooted, they don't have their means they don't have the work, their, you know, local surrounding anymore. So I do believe there might be some more crime happening in general. But, I mean, let's face it, pickpockets, you know, if you go to Venice or Rome or like uh, any other place like Berlin, there are pickpockets wherever you have masses of people and people running around and splashing with their cameras, you will have people that attracts them. And that's not really so much changing, I think, with a refugee situation. That's just a normal thing that comes with traveling that you've got to be careful. I mean, you know, walk downtown Chicago, you, you will be careful. That's a similar thing. Thanks so much. Good luck on your trip, Beverly. We're taking your
0: calls for our European panel. Our phone number is 877 333 7425. We're discussing the impact of the influx of refugees on France, Italy, and Germany with Virginie Moret from Lyon, Nina Bernardo from Rome, and Holger Zimmer from Berlin. Barbara's calling from Rochester, New York. Barbara, are you planning a trip to Europe?
5: Yes, I am. Hi, Rick. Um, we're planning to go to Belgium, Holland, and Luxembourg in April, and hopefully see the tulips. <laughs> um, we're going to be flying into Brussels and staying there for a few days before traveling on. Um, but this is now causing my husband, I'm not the one, to want to cancel the trip because of all the terrorists we hear about in that area. He continually brings up that Brussels was closed down for several days before they were searching for the French terrorists. And What would we do if we were in Brussels and that happened? Should I be listening to him or continue with our plans? What can I tell him to make him feel more at ease in traveling to Brussels? And would a large group of American tourists be more of a target for terrorists? And what do tour guides look for to keep their travelers safe?
0: Boy, those are good questions. And we've got three tour guides who earn their living taking groups around France, Italy, and Germany here. And I'm curious, too. uh, Let's start with Nina in Italy. Are there any precautions you're taking? Uh, What would you advise your friends or loved ones in America about this uh, terrorism? And and Europe is full of soft targets. You, You can't really protect every target in Europe.
1: I understand that a lot of people are scared right now because of what they see on the news and the media tends to sensationalize a few isolated events. But you have to manage your perception of the situation with actually the statistical risk. And statistically, you have more of a chance of being involved in, in a violent crime in the U.S., of being the victim of a violent crime in the U.S. than you ever have of being the victim of some kind of a random terrorist attack in Europe. So you're much safer going to Europe.
0: Uh, Virginie, in in France, Paris had this horrible event recently, and I would imagine that that caused a lot of people in France to be a little bit less idealistic and compassionate and and move to the right. What happened in France politically after that crisis?
6: Well, politically, we had a new election, regional election, Mm -hmm. and we've seen a rise in France in the right-wing populist movement, the Front National, uh, that has existed for quite a while. Mm -hmm. And obviously, with what happened, people tend to vote even more on that, you know, extreme right. Mm-hmm. And the first round of election, six of the 13 regions were actually going to be uh, won by the Front National.
0: And that would be a very That's the extreme right party that anti-immigrant party.
6: Anti-immigrant, anti-Europe, getting rid of the euro, pretty much isolating just Isolationist France. Isolationist,
0: because of this anxiety caused by the terrorist risk. Which is
6: fear that people get because, you know, people have a fear that the migrants are just taking benefits. And they're going to flout the culture, and there's going to be more crime. But as uh, Nina said, this is just, you know, what we see on the media, and this is a fear that, you know, that those populist movements are using. And on the second round of the election, actually, French people realized that we can't go this way. We can't just live in fear. And so none of the French regions of the 13 regions Were worn by the right wing.
0: So there is that anxiety, that little bit of nervousness. Which is human. Understandably so.
6: The day after the the terrorist attack in Paris, nobody went out on that Saturday. And then on Sunday, life started again. People went out because you can't live in fear.
0: And how does it feel now in Paris?
6: People, you know, live again. You can't just not do your regular things. Go to a cafe, go buy your baguette, and just go to a concert. In a sense,
0: you're you're giving victory to the terrorists. Exactly. You let them change your Mm -hmm. life. And I find that a very strong sentiment across the board in Europe is, We do not want to let the terrorist uh, be victorious Mm -hmm. by changing our life. And I don't know about Europe, but the media in the United States makes us feel like when you step outside your door, you're going to be a target.
4: Now,
7: Holger, you're a journalist in Germany. Yeah. Is there that kind of sense? I don't, that... I don't think like you're, you know, have the feeling like you're going to be a target of something, but of course everyone is concerned. But it, what I do believe also is to go further, it is really, I think, a challenge that not just only faces Germany or France or Britain, like how many people are they taken in, but it really is a question that's being posed to Europe, the to European Union. What are our values? What are the things that actually unites us? Because we have 28 member states with a national culture, and like, are we just like, a huge part of land that tries to distribute goods back and forth, or are we have something in common that is actually more true to our hearts? What unites us as Europeans? And I think that is something that we don't have an easy answer for that yet. So this is an interesting test of the of the ethic, the the
0: culture of Europe. Yes. Are you going to be a culture of fear and isolation, or a culture of closeness, or a culture of openness and working together? Yes. Barbara, does that make sense to you?
5: Yes. Oh, yeah. I've always said I don't want the terrorists
0: to win. Yeah. I'm, I'm sad that your husband is, is that <laughs> nervous about it. As Nina described, I try to distinguish between my fear, which may be reasonable, and the assessment of the risk. And I, I think it's easy to make a logical assessment of the risk that is completely different from my emotions. So uh, good luck making your travel dreams come true, Barbara.
5: Yep, and I agree with you that I think the terrorists are just as bad here.
0: Yeah, I mean, just philosophically, I believe the most important thing we can do if we really want to be safe is to continue traveling and be connected with the realities of this planet because we're all on this planet together. We've got to live together. Thanks, Barbara. Okay, thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking about the refugee crisis in Europe. I'd like to hear from each of you if you think if it's played right, the refugees can be absorbed into the economies of the strong economies of Europe. Because I remember a while ago, Europe was thinking of taking Turkey into the EU because Europe is an old continent needs a younger workforce. Is there a silver lining to the refugee situation that gives societies a revitalized workforce? Or is this refugee situation just a burden and it can be handled for compassionate reasons rather than making the economy stronger?
7: Holger? I wouldn't say it's a burden necessarily, but I do believe it's more of a challenge than it actually is an expectation or something that is good for the economy. Virginia in France?
6: Well, France has a renewal of the population of 2.1, which is one of the few countries in Western Europe where you actually have... Uh,
0: Oh, you're growing in your yes, population, actually, so the French yeah. are more fertile than your neighbors.
6: Mm-hmm, exactly. Lately. So, so this is not seen as something positive to have, you know, more workers. More workers, and especially okay. with economically, as I was saying earlier, with you know the unemployment we have, it's very hard for people to realize that you know maybe we can benefit. So it's it's, it's going to um, be
0: an economic burden. Exactly. Nina in Italy.
6: I think it's definitely a challenge, but the
1: Italians don't have a high birth rate, so they're not replacing themselves. So it could definitely be a positive economically for them if they handle the situation correctly. And there are a few places that I've recently read about, small towns in the south of Italy, that are being depopulated because the older population is dying, the younger Mm -hmm. population doesn't want to stay. And a few mayors have taken have invited immigrants in and are allowing them to work. So in small pockets of places, people are making an effort to see it as a positive.
0: Holger Zimmer from Germany. Virginie Moret from France, Nina Bernardo from Italy, thanks so much for being part of this discussion.
1: Thanks. Thank
6: you, Rick.
0: We'll learn what people are talking about these days in Spain. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. ¶¶ In many ways, Spain is cut off from Europe by the Pyrenees Mountains. They run from the Atlantic to the Mediterranean, dividing the French from the Spanish people. Maybe that's why Spain tends to face the South. Spain has a long and complicated relationship with Muslim North Africa, and Spain was home to one of the most troubled economies in the recent crisis. It's a complicated and fascinating country, exciting place to travel, and we're going to check in on the latest from España right now. We're joined by three Spanish guides. Amanda Buttinger is here, and she's uh, an American from Maryland who's lived in Madrid for 18 years and led Americans around her country. Francisco Glaria is from Pamplona up in Basque Country, and Federico Garcia Barroso is from Madrid. Federico, Francisco, Amanda, thanks for joining us.
3: Buenos días. Buenos
0: días. I led off talking about the importance of the Pyrenees because I always feel like, you know, I studied European history, and it felt like Spain was cut off. Federico, what are the Pyrenees in relationship to Spain and the rest of Europe?
8: Supposedly, the Pyrenees are more than a physical border. Of course, we are physically and culturally, we are Europe. But in many ways, we are related to Northern Africa, whether food or people and history. Some of the most remarkable legacies in our country came from the Moors, and they stayed there for seven centuries, and they left us an amazing heritage, and that is a fact.
0: So this is important when you go to Spain to recognize, in a lot of ways, Spain faces uh, Mm -hmm. North Africa, Morocco and Moorish civilization. Francisco, when you think of Spain's relationship to North Africa and the Muslim world over the centuries, how is that impacting Spain today?
2: Well, today one of the big issues right now is immigration. It's all around, and immigration. It's we are can, canoe from Africa to Spain, so we have a lot of immigration coming in, and it's you one. Can, of you the, said you can canoe. From well, Africa. you can. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's, you got to be a good canoeist, but well, can, that happens, doesn't it? There's yeah. Actually, there's night watches on the beach mm-hmm. to see who's sneaking yes, in I from mean, Africa. This,
2: we have a big, major problem. You have to think that we're a socialist country. So we have to take care of all of these people, but the economy is not good enough to give it to everybody. So I think right now it's a European issue. What do we do? How do we deal with these people moving from one country to another country? In Spain, we've had this problem or this issue for many, many years ago. It's nothing new, is it? I mean, you go to a church in in southern Spain
0: and you see statues of uh, Spanish Christian leaders cutting off the heads of Moors. Santiago. Yeah. <laughs> Santiago. What's his nickname? Matamoros. What does that mean? The Moor, the Moor Slayer, the Moor Killer. Yeah. Federico, you see this literally in church, don't you?
8: Everywhere. And nowadays it's not really diplomatic, you see, but in those days, in those times of the Crusades, the St. James, Santiago in Spanish language, is actually the man who is riding his white horse in the name of God and cutting off the heads of those bad Moors, you see. So is, yeah, this actually,
0: was how long ago was this was a thousand years ago or exactly something. Yeah. yeah so there's been a long history of christendom coming up to islam in spain i mean amanda when you go to the the rock of gibraltar and you look out what do you see
3: you can see africa
0: it's right there the pillars of, what are the pillars of hercules is that what that's called the two rocks on either side
3: the two rocks on either side joining that hercules the myth of hercules came and pushed the land apart
0: and to this day that's a very strategic uh, spot Spain has an interesting relationship with with Britain because of the Rock of Gibraltar. What's what's that all about, Amanda?
3: Well, Britain uh maintains its territory in, in Gibraltar and there's always little tiffs between the two of them on the territory. It, it is a very continues to be strategic spot.
0: So British the British recognize that just from a military point of view that if if you hold the Rock of Gibraltar, you bottle up all the trade coming in and out of the Mediterranean passing through. Yes. Wow. Now, Amanda, you've been in in Madrid for 18 years. Uh I was just in uh, Andalusian and, and they were talking about the first mosque that's been built in Spain since uh, the uh, Reconquista, the, you know. Yeah, so.
8: they actually came into Spain in the year 711, very easy right. to remind, and then it took a while to conquer the, basically the whole peninsula and then we find although um, Moorish architecture everywhere. Even in northern Spain in some tiny enclaves they, they really arrived there. They just they felt more comfortable in central and southern Spain, but they were everywhere. Yeah.
0: But the, the Moors were famously kicked out or the Muslim overlords or whatever were kicked back into Morocco in fourteen ninety two. But Muslim culture stayed in Spain in, in so many ways. And as a, as a tourist, Amanda, today, what do you see that's part of that Moorish heritage?
3: Well, I do take, apart from the heritage, the new uh, Muslim community. I always take people in Granada to the new mosque, which was built in the early 2000s. I think it was 2006. But it took, I think it took about 20 years for them to approve the mosques. Right. But the, but the fascinating there. thing
0: about that is it was not built for immigrants, the way I understand it. It's built exactly. for Spaniards whose families have been in Spain exactly. a long time. There's nothing, exactly. nothing uh, North African about immigrant it. about them. Mm-hmm. This is mm-hmm. an indigenous Spanish religion, mm-hmm. Islam, that's been there for a thousand years. What is the relationship right now in Spain? We hear a lot about the relationship in Paris between the uh, Christian and the Muslim communities there. What are the tensions and what are the positives and what are the negatives in Spain with
8: the Muslim minority? Yeah, we actually, I think that they are the biggest minority. They are roughly, roughly one million people. In Spain, we are in total 46 million people, if I'm not wrong. We have to remember... Uh, unfortunately, we had our uh, 9-11 that happened, actually, over 4-11 in the year 2004, if I'm not wrong. And we have to say that the Spaniards, any kind of Spaniard, we reacted in, in a non-negative way against the Islamic community, because we all understand that those killers are not representing, you know, the Muslims that we have in Spain, you see. So this is important to say, you know, it's important to say that the Spaniards, in my opinion, are not actually unfriendly, you know, with all this uh, issue. So, this is interesting.
0: So, you mentioned your 9-11, which happens to be Mm 4-11. What would that be? April 11th, uh, Mm -hmm. a few years after Mm 9-11. And we had this terrible bomb in Madrid. And your point is, the Spaniards recognized that this was a crime done by some terrible people, but not a civil war within uh, ethnic groups in, in Spain. Exactly, exactly.
2: I don't know if I'm that positive. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I'm see? beginning to see racism uh-huh. against religion. I'm beginning to to feel people fear when you see people all dressed with burqas. Mm-hmm. Like, mm, so you I, see a rising uh, presence. I'm there. beginning to see it. And, you know, there there's something going on. I don't know exactly what it is. But I I think until now, until everything that happened on Charlie Hebdo, and all of these things are changing us. We're beginning to be a little bit more distant. We're not as clean as we were before. So
0: there was that idealism before, but now after uh, Charlie Hebdo and other terrible terrorist acts in the last years, mm-hmm. Spain is becoming a, a more guarded. Mm-hmm. And if you were a Muslim in Spain, you would feel probably a little more ostracized.
2: Watched, Watched. Yeah. Watched. <laughs>
8: I just want to say that it's not exclusively about religion. I would say that it's all about immigration. The economical situation in Spain is not good. And some people have those fears about, oh, they are going to get our jobs. And now, no matter that they are actually Muslims or they are Latin American people or people come from Eastern Europe, you know, they are immigrants. And and that is basically the point. I agree to say that there is a kind of racism that is more visible right now than Mm -hmm. it was a few years ago. When I was in Spain, I'll never forget, I saw no signs in
0: Arabic going north. And I saw a lot of signs in Arabic uh, going, going south. <laughs> like, if you want to get back to Morocco, this is the way to <laughs> go. This is the go. way. Go, go that way. <laughs> <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Amanda Buttinger, Francisco Glaria, and Federico Garcia Barroso. We're talking about Spanish politics and economics. Our phone numbers, 877-333-7425. And Michael's on the line from Houston in Texas. Michael, have you given some thought to the complexity of Spanish society these days?
5: Uh, yes, actually, for uh, at least a couple of years, I've been following what's going on with Catalonia, and I see that the new prime minister of Catalonia pledged secession within 18 months, and the Spanish prime minister said he would, he would fight for national unity. I've also been told that secession would be unconstitutional, although I don't think the Catalonian politicians would care about that.
0: So, for for our listeners, Michael, Catalonia is that very uh, wealthy and proud and industrious northeast corner of Spain uh, where they have their own heritage and language and the capital city would be, or the leading city would be, Barcelona. I saw uh, Francisco sort of rolling his eyes when you mentioned the uh, ruler, the leader of <laughs> Catalonia. What's your take on that, Francisco? Well,
2: we right now we have a big mess in Catalonia because uh, they had an elections, and who's going to win? Okay, a lot of people said, okay, it's going to be the separatists, and they're going to keep on going with that. The separatist. And at the end, they didn't get it. So there was these elections, and okay, let's trade votes, I give you this. Nothing. So right now, they have just changed the new prime minister, new prime ministers, Carlos Puigdemont, and he's exactly the same as the other one, but whatever he does, he is part of Spain, part of Europe. I don't think he, they will be able to come out of, of Europe. Do they want to come out of Spain? No, they want to come out of Spain, and yeah. Europe says, okay, if you go out of Spain, you're out of Europe. Oh, is that right? Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's worth getting out of Europe.
8: And Federico, what's your take on that? I've been guiding people for many years in many different countries, and, and this is a problem of... Uh, Political fanatism, um, uh, in the same way that we see... Fanaticism, Fanaticism, exactly. In the same way that we see some religious fanaticism, this is a problem about people that want to believe something that is impossible to make tangible. So he's a populist stirring up his people's
0: passions, but realistically it's not going to happen. But he's doing that just to get elected and get everybody hot. Exactly. I guess that happens in our country too. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because realistically,
3: if you're going to separate from Spain, Hmm. you separate from the European Union, you have to have new money perhaps you might not get into the European Union. I think Union. Scotland have have was thinking the same thing because it might sound
0: good, but it's the reality is new pensions it's and expensive. taxes
3: and schools. Mm-hmm.
0: But Madrid cares about Catalonia
8: because Catalonia is a very important part of the economic equation. Well, exactly. Obviously, it's, it's a Madrid is the capital of Spain, but actually we have to talk about all the Spaniards, and we have to talk about those Catalans. One fact is to be Catalan, and another one is to be Catalanist. Mm-hmm. Those Catalanist people are the ones that do not consider themselves as Spaniards, despite that they are. You so see?
0: you can be Catalan and a good Spaniard. Absolutely. Michael, does that give you some insights there?
5: Uh, yes, and just one more question. Is, is there some middle ground where the uh, Spanish national government could give something to the Catalans? In, uh, in order
2: to um,
1: them.
5: be friends again, I guess. Okay, Francisco.
2: Michael, I think at the end everything is about money, okay? Mm-hmm. I come from the Basque country, and in the Basque country, because of history and, well, many things, we have some special laws. The big difference is that in the Basque country, we collect the taxes, we pack an X amount of money with the central government, and the central government, they forget about us, so we take care of our education, healthcare, care, blah, 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 blah. And that is what Catalonia wants, So
0: that's interesting. You need to just live with being part of the Spanish central government and give them their taxes. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, Madrid now, which is different from a generation ago, will give you the
2: freedom to speak your language and do your dances and (laughs) whatever, eat your funny papas. (laughs) There we go. I mean, the thing is that for many centuries, the Basque country uh, and Navarre, we've been different. We had this privilege. And they have seen that the other communities that It is a good way of dealing with your money. So Catalonians would be inspired by the success of the Basque people in dealing with Madrid? I think Catalonia, if they would have the same taxing system as we do, they will be okay.
0: Now, Michael is planning on on, uh, going there, I think, and I wonder what are the consequences for a traveler to Catalonia with the the heated rhetoric. Uh, Is there any concern for a traveler, Amanda?
3: I don't believe there's a concern. There are protests, but they're very controlled, and uh, one thing you will definitely see are banners and the Catalan separatist flags all over balconies, all over the town. You know, but I think but you do see a lot of the colors in the yeah. flags.
0: But Federico, do you think it's safe to travel in Catalonia?
8: It is absolutely safe. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's just peculiar to see those flags. And actually, our travelers, they ask questions about all those things and mm-hmm. then we answer. It's absolutely safe.
0: Michael, thanks so much for your call. Oh, sure, thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Federico Garcia Barroso, Amanda Buttinger, and Francisco Gloria about Spanish politics and economics. Francisco, you're from Basque country. You live in Pamplona, which is in a region called Navarre. It's Mm -hmm. also on the border between Basque and Spain. Do you consider yourself Basque
2: or Navarre or Spanish? Talking to you, I consider myself Basque. But when I go back home to Spain, I never say I'm Basque. (laughs) Uh, Why? The difference is uh, being Basque is a culture. And the Basque culture, you find it in the Basque country, which is a small region in Spain, and in part of Navarre, and also in the Basque French. Okay, So that is Basque culture. But politically or geographically Basque, I am not from there. I'm from Navarre, which is a region that is by the Basque country. So, is, so, so,
0: touristically, it's fun for you to be Basque, and, and you enjoy all of the Basque <laughs> culture.
2: I know. And I, but it's in your best interest in Spain not to say I, that. Is that. If you're from Navarre, where right. I come from, if you say you're Basque, it means that you are with separatists. Ah, so you're Basqueist. Like, you're exactly. That's it. <laughs> I never thought about it. Yeah, you're Basqueist, yeah. <laughs> And I am not, I am Spanish. I'm one hundred percent Spanish, with Basque tradition, who Very nice. is in Navarre. So it's kind of complicated. I always say that Basque we are a little bipolar. We're strange. Thank you. Now, Federico, you're mm-hmm. you're from Madrid. How
0: long yeah. have you how long has your family been in Madrid?
8: Several generations.
0: When you say you're from Madrid, you can look down the street and see the royal palace. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's hard for an American to understand the stature of a royal family and having a royal family in the gossip pages and so on. Mm-hmm. Your royal family uh, took you out of fascism. I mean, isn't it right that your fascist dictator mm-hmm. gave the uh, government to? Juan Carlos. And Juan, Carlos. Exactly. And Juan Carlos probably disappointed Franco by letting your society morph into democracy. Mm-hmm. Is that fair to say?
8: The monarchy came back to Spain by the decision of a dictator. This is extremely important to consider, okay? Mm-hmm. And I think some people say beautiful words nowadays about Juan Carlos. In my opinion, he was not actually the savior of our democracy. I think that he was a prudent king who played the role that he had to play. Mm-hmm. He had actually some wise people next to him telling him what to do, when, where, and how. And and nowadays, things are are changing. But it's important to tell to our listeners, by the way, that the Spanish monarchy nowadays, they play a symbolic role. They are our figureheads. They do not own all that historical legacy. That Mm -hmm. is not happening in the UK. The the British monarchy are the owners of that heritage. And in Spain, all those palaces belong to the people, and we love them to have those buildings in a kind of perpetual use. But they are not the owners anymore of that legacy. So
0: what is the function of the royal family in Spain, very briefly, and... Give us a review about elephant hunting and tax fraud and strange husbands.
8: The decline of the the monarchy nowadays, or or some of the members, I mean. Yeah, they are our best figureheads, our cultural ambassadors. Nothing more than that. The only thing is, in the last years, you know, Juan Carlos, our former king, he made some silly mistakes. You know, he went to hunt elephants in Africa uh, with uh, (laughs) not actually the best conditions. And he went there actually with our money, not with his money, you see.
0: When Spain was suffering with a terrible
8: economic uh, crisis. Exactly. That was actually the the, the, was a big mistake. And that is what happened. So that was the beginning of the decline. And consequently, Sofia, the former queen, who is actually a very wise woman, she said, this is a time for our son. This is a time for Felipe, Philip VI, our new mm-hmm. king with Leticia, with that ordinary girl that became our queen.
0: Very quickly, the tax scandal of the princess and her husband.
8: That is actually affecting deeply, you know, to the core of the Spanish monarchy, because she, uh, the princess of the second one, Cristina, has been accused of accomplice of a tax fraud because her husband has been stealing huge amounts of public money. We are talking about 6 million euros delivering all that to Belize and Central America. So
0: the princess married a man who takes a lot of money in Mm -hmm. in, um, shady ways and sends Mm -hmm. it offshore to Belize. Mm -hmm. We'll stay tuned for that in the gossip pages, I would imagine. This has been so interesting talking about what's going on in Spain. Of course, the big news in the last decade has been the economic crisis. I'd like to finish just letting each of you give a, a little summation of How's Spain's doing with the economy? Amanda? I
3: have an interesting take. There is a lot of loss of jobs, a lot of closing of businesses, but I also find a lot of creativity coming out of it. In my neighborhood in Madrid, there are five new theater groups with stages and very, very interesting activity going on. People lose jobs. What do you do? You do what you love, and then it becomes your job.
0: Amanda, I found the same thing in Athens, which is having even more difficult times, but Mm -hmm. I felt a a special creative uh, regeneration. Mm -hmm. Federico.
8: Yeah, you know, I, I really think so. I mean, there is a moment of blooming, you know, when we have a crisis, that is a moment in which people just wake up and they, they just give us the best that they have. I see a lot of creativity and I don't want to be arrogant if I say that we, work all, we all work in tourism industry and we don't see the crisis. Mm-hmm. I mean, Spain is welcoming millions of visitors every year and you see them everywhere. You, we don't really, really see the crisis in that way.
0: So we should remind people who are going to Spain, you wouldn't want to be on a construction project in some Rust Belt town. Mm-hmm. But if you're a tourist or if you're tour guides like you, you're sort of in a different parallel universe where the sangria is nice <laughs> mm-hmm. and the flamenco dancers are sexy and the tapas are being served until midnight. And that's just, you don't notice the no, uh, not really. the
2: crisis.
3: Many, many tour members do comment on that. Hmm.
0: And Francisco, Gloria.
2: I think, yeah, we're beginning to come out of the crisis. And to me, one of the things that has really changed is that, you know, we're losing money, but we're gaining a human kindness. People helping people. It's a big, big, big moment of camaraderie and people... You know, you need this, here we go. There's a lot of uh, food banks. There's a, everything is working, you know. I think we're becoming a little bit more human. We're... That's a beautiful
0: thing, and I remember reading the same thing uh, from people reporting from Iceland after their banks all collapsed. All of a sudden, it was like the good old days when people took care of each other. Yeah,
2: I mean, I think we're going back to basic values. I think we need to change. We're, we've been money, 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 money oriented. Uh, let's go to hugs, and let's go to sherry. Let's go to good things. On that beautiful sentiment, I like to say... Gracias to each one of you, and best wishes. Thank Thank you.
8: Thank you.
0: Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to our colleagues at the Radio Foundation in New York for their help this week. You can listen again on demand and find guest information and the details for each week's show. It's updated weekly in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone believes that knowing even just a little bit of a new language can help take down barriers so your trip can be truly memorable. Helping people learn language for more than 20 years, it's now available on smartphones and tablets. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Rick Steves has
8: spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. And his country, city and
0: snapshot guides cover what to see, where to eat and where to sleep for every corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.